It's late May, which means it's Eurovision week. In this edition of the podcast, we have more research from BISC students and faculty and lots of Euro news to discuss. So here we go. Hello and welcome back to the Castle Podcast, now brought to you through Podbean and available on your smart devices. Just ask for BISC Podcast. Today we have two features. First, an interview with one of our Castle philosophers, Dr. Tim Hazar, whose new edited anthology has just been released, and we'll also be speaking with former BISC student Akriti Kapoor who will tell us about what she's been researching lately. So let's get started. But first, the news. The bisque is full of flowers, England is full of football, and Europe is full of song. As the castle ushers in spring, the grounds are gloriously in bloom. While the May rains have kept the sunshine to a minimum, they've been wonderful for the flowers. If you're in the area, check out the last of the bluebells before they are replaced with the foxgloves. And the wisteria in the courtyard is especially lovely this year. That blooms twice in the year, and so look out for its second bloom in August and September. While the UK has been a bit wet and windy, this hasn't put a damper on the football. Last weekend saw the FA Cup final where Leicester City beat Chelsea 1-0. There were 3,000 fans in attendance in one of the UK's first experiments in reopening large events to live audience participants. The game closed with a shocker when at the 88th minute, Chelsea scored a tying goal, which was then disallowed for breaking the offside rule. And finally, this week is the Eurovision Song Contest. If you're not familiar with the fun and pageantry of Eurovision, check out the Netflix film Eurovision The Story of Fire Saga, which does a pretty good job of capturing the strangeness that is Eurovision. Highlights of this year's contest will involve a Russian singer in a remote-controlled dress, a Norwegian angel surrounded by devils, and a ukulele-playing German accompanied by a trumpet-playing woman dressed as a giant foam hand. You can stream Eurovision in the UK on Saturday night on BBC One, in Canada on the Omni Network, and globally on the Eurovision YouTube live stream. Check that out on Saturday. And that's all for the news. And now it's time for our first feature. I'm here with Dr. Tim Hazar, who is here to talk about a new book that's just been released in 2021. Uh, hello, Tim. How are you doing? Hi, Rob. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. Now, the book is Toward a Feminist Ethics of Nonviolence, and this is an edited anthology of work. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the project and uh, what the aim and the scope of the project was. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. Um, so the project, I suppose, um, and the, its kind of aim and scope was focusing on the work of Adriana Cavarero, who is um, Italy's kind of foremost feminist scholar. Um, she uh, was a professor um, at the University of Verona for many years and is currently the president of the Hannah Arendt Center for Political Studies at the University of Verona. And her work has been hugely influential. She's written six monographs and published countless articles, been at the forefront of debates um, within feminist theory around issues of vulnerability, for example. Um, but she's also written extensively on issues of narrative, issues of the voice and vocality in voice studies, political theory, kind of international relations theory and studies of violence. 
and visual cultures most recently. And then she has a new book coming out later this year in English, already out in Italian, and that book's called Surging Democracy in English. And it's a kind of close engagement with the thought of another 20th century political theorist, Hannah Arendt, who's been a deep influence on her work, but in particular thinking about the political states. So Cavarero um, has all of this influence and the book emerged from a conference um, that we organised on her work um, in 2017 at the University of Brighton, because we noted that Cavarero, we go to conferences and everyone was talking about her work. She clearly had a wide ranging influence across many different disciplines, but there had been no kind of single study, no single academic event bringing together all of that scholarship. So in the English speaking world, at least. So we said, how about we do one? Um, I had the opportunity to meet Cavarero and her colleagues at a summer school in Verona in 2015 or 2016, I think. Um, so we were able to build connections there. And that's then onto the conference. The conference was hugely successful um, over three days, huge number of submissions from people across the world. That then led on to us proposing the book, and myself and my co-editor, Claire Woodford at Brighton, pr pr proposing the book to Fordham um, and identifying various people that presented at the conference, including Cavarero and Bonnie Honig and Judith Butler, who are also leading feminist scholars globally, um, to contribute pieces to it, um, which was accepted. And then over the next couple of years, edited with all of the different contributors um, to be the volume that we've got. So really the aim was to kind of bring together scholars who have been deeply influenced by Adriana Cavarero's work. Um, and in particular, I think the, the emphasis of the book ended up focusing on her most recent book at the time, which was her book, Inclinations, A Critique of Rectitude, that came out in 2016. So that's a theme that is present quite clearly throughout um, the question of nonviolence, um, a feminist ethics of nonviolence, um, was really kind of a summation of some of the ideas that Cavarero and Butler, um, who's written her own work on nonviolence recently, and Bonnie Honig and others of us who contributed, had kind of been mulling over this idea of nonviolence and what feminism and feminist theory has got to say to um, political theory, ethics, and um, the issue—you know—the question of violence more generally. Yeah, so that was that was the long and the short of it, really. So you mentioned this theory of inclination. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the idea of inclination as a theoretical mo mode. Cavarero, in, in the book by, of that name, she starts out by saying that, um, like throughout all of her work, she is kind of developing a critique of. Um, the dominant way that the human gets um, talked about within Western culture and Western philosophical thought, and that human is kind of sovereign, autonomous, willful, independent, and for Cavarero, importantly, um, gendered um, as masculine. Um, and that's the kind of assumption. So her feminist project is trying to destabilize that idea and open up what it means to be human to be able to signify in all sorts of different ways and to really focused on not just the human in the abstract, but particular men and women and other, other kind of gender identity peoples in their specificity. And she says in Inclination, she's just, she just notes that so often in Western culture, we think of what is normal, what is right, what is correct as being kind of upright and vertical. And she says, if, if the dominant idea of the human, um, which is implicitly masculine, has a posture, then he's upright. He's standing erect, to use the word, right? You know, and she make you know she quite clearly is making that that kind of phallocentric kind of um, play on words there. And she says, but that's weird because no one, even men, no one, no one's upright and vertical on their own. We're all dependent on others, and it's strange that philosophy um, and gen and Western thought more generally can't really come to terms with that. And she says, you know, let's just think about those early moments in our lives 
when we are born utterly dependent on another person without whom we can't survive and in direct relation to another person typically our mother or somebody fulfilling that symbolic role some some caregiver who has a who has a responsibility to look after us she says think about their posture at that moment they are inclined they're leaning over the child they're leaning out um hopefully to offer care she says therefore inclination might be a better way of imagining what it is to be human what it is to to exist in this kind of bodied form that we have yeah so so she, and she does a lot with that concept there's a lot more that stems from there but that's the kind of beginnings to try and use it to allow us to think new ways of thinking about what it is to be basically so does cavarero create a dichotomy between the erect male and the inclined mother or is it that these are uh components of humanity she does create a dichotomy but it's one which she does to be able to undermine that binary so she says when you're doing kind of feminist scholarship for cavarero you're you're stuck you know um using the master's tools to dismantle his house um we're stuck with the language that we've got to be able to describe the world we're stuck with the kind of cultural ideas that we've got so she says the world's full of stereotypes right you know the stereotype of the independent man or the caring inclined mother um and you can see those reflected back in famous paintings in the way that people are represented in all sorts of different ways and she says that what she wants to do is to take the stereotype and use it to explode the underlying logic that allows you to have those two binaries so she's not saying that women are inevitably going to be caring mothers or that all men are inevitably kind of independent sovereign autonomous individuals she's saying that she's saying that's the stereotype and mm. um, but what we can do is by focusing on inclination we can make it signify um in ways um which are not determined by a normative upright person so inclination always ends up being the thing that isn't the normative upright um individual um and she says well what if we we put that gaze to one side and focused just on the experience of offering care offering support being cared for being off balance in the moment that we offer care and trying to break up that kind of those two binaries um to yeah open a whole new ways of thinking outside of those kind of either or dichotomous logic yeah. so i'm talking with timothy hazar who is releasing his new book toward a feminist ethics of non-violence a book on inclination and feminist uh ethics uh it's available on waterstones or amazon.co.uk published by fordham press and it's available in kindle edition for 14 pound 80 or in paperback for 15 50 58 uh from Amazon. Tim, where next with your research? So a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is taking those ideas of Cavarero's, a lot of it from inclinations and bringing it into conversation with recent black feminist scholarship which deals with very similar themes but obviously brings into view this question of race and racialization um which Cavarero occasionally touches on but her primary focus is on issues of sex and gender. Um so my kind of general position is that Cavarero's work is trying to destabilize to try and offer an alternative to um the dominant western idea of what it is to be human and she quite rightly says that that human is masculine but obviously that human is also racialized as white. And so in the same way that Cavarero appeals to women's experiences to offer alternatives I think we also need to think about like histories black radical histories and the radical alternatives that they have offered and in particular what you see in recent um contemporary black studies feminist scholarship as also being really valuable resources to be able to offer radical alternative accounts to existence so that's the kind of 
work that I'm doing at the moment is bringing in those two bodies of scholarship into conversation. Well, thank you, Tim. I'm looking forward to seeing your next project. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And finally... Earlier this year, I spoke with former BISC student Akriti Kapoor about what she's been up to since spending a summer term studying at the castle. I'm with Akriti Kapoor, and she is a former BISC student, but she wasn't a Queen's student. However, you might find surprising she is a Queen's student now. Uh, hello, Akriti. Hi, Robert. Nice to chat with you again after all these years. It has been a long time. When were you at the BISC? Was it 2015, 2016? Yes, it was the summer of 2015. I was in the summer program. And so you came as a U of T student. And what were you studying at the time? Yeah, so I was at the time doing my bachelor's at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Um, I was pursuing a double major in English and psychology with a minor in fine arts. And I came to BISC towards the end of my degree as a summer exchange student, and I was lucky enough to use the courses at BISC towards my degree at U of T. And from then on, I went on to do my master's of teaching at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto, and I now work as an applied education researcher with the Toronto District School Board. And as you mentioned, I'm back at Queen's also uh, pursuing my PhD in the Faculty of Education. So you're working full time while doing your PhD full time. Yeah, <laughs> we're surprisingly in a way that workload. <laughs> the pandemic's been a blessing and a curse with this because not having to commute to both Kingston and to my office in the West End of Toronto makes life easier because now I have more time for <laughs> reading, which there surprisingly is a lot of in a PhD program. That's uh, It is a big uh, commitment. Um, so what is your research project that you uh, are hoping to work on with your PhD? Yeah, so I my research looks at questions of are uh, issues of how, to, how can we dismantle colonial capitalist racist and other oppressive systems both locally and globally and I am particularly interested in how can we drive system change at the institutional level in places like school boards where I work but also how do we drive large-scale change at the grassroots level that mobilizes individuals from all walks of life in an inclusive and accessible way so thinking about ideas of revolution as we've all seen this year in particular, and also about issues of how do we build solidarities in both local and global movements to fight issues such as anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, global capitalism, caste apartheid. One of the ways, I guess, to understand this might be colonialism as a system. One of its key methodologies was divide and conquer. Um, and that was how control was established over uh, different subsections of the world um, and continues to operate in that way. But what happens when we challenge that through solidarity building, where instead of oh, just hoping that it's the Black students fighting for Black issues and the Indigenous students fighting for Indigenous issues, we are building collective solidarities among differently oppressed communities to work to collectively dismantle the larger structures of power and privilege because ultimately it is issues like white supremacy and colonialism that are all operating and they're impacting different communities differently, but that is also the ultimate structure that needs dismantling. One of the terms that has come up a lot is decolonizing education. 
It's a term, though, that has brought up some resistance among some communities, and I think it's because they don't fully understand what exactly the term means. Can you explain, using examples, what decolonizing education is and what it entails? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think one of the things I'd like to first do before I go on to explain this is acknowledge the work of um, Indigenous, Black, and other racialized scholars who have done an incredible amount of work in this area of scholarship to help me understand these terms itself. So specifically folks like Eve Tuck, um, Kay Wayne Yang, Linda Tuhiwai-Smith, Franz Fanon, and many others. But from what I understand it, and particularly Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang have a really good explanation of what decolonization really means. And what they talk about is decolonization ultimately brings about the repatriation of indigenous land and life, which was unjustly stolen and harmed by settler colonial states. And I'll unpack that a little bit because I know there's a lot of like big words in that. When we think about um, colonialism, we understand that as an era in time where independent sovereign states were colonized primarily by European powers. In some of those instances, say countries like India, Nigeria, and Haiti at times are, can be considered post-colonial in a sense because there were independent struggles that took place that drove out the colonizing power and independence was gained in theory, uh, which is another conversation. But then there are instances of settler states like Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand, where colonization continues in a form of through something called settler colonialism, which is where the colonial settlers that came in um, settled on indigenous land without consent and the treaties that were established at the time of which were grounded in theories of sharing the land and peacefully taking care of each other, that didn't necessarily happen. What ended up happening was more of a domination uh, reality where indigenous communities were harmed. And if we follow the United Nations definition of what genocide means, there are five elements of genocide, and that can include everything from intend to kill a community, but also to things like uh, causing serious mental or bodily harm, um, to things like removing the community's children away from them, to preventing the community from reproducing. And those are all things that happened in settler colonial states like Canada, USA, New Zealand, and more. The reason these terms get really uncomfortable for folks is because there really was a clear uh, display which continues of power and domination, right? There were communities that were harmed in the process and there were communities that benefited off of that harm. And when we try to lay that out on the forefront where we say that we want to reverse this harm, we want this harm to be acknowledged, and what we want to go back to is the original promise that was made when settlers arrived on this land, that we're going to share this land and we want to, we're going to peacefully take care of each other. We're not going to try to dominate over another person. We're not going to try to hurt one another. We're going to go back to those ideas of mutual care. That is a concept that gets really tough for folks to understand. Decolonization 
is a complex process. And I, I find it interesting that we've switched from using language of post-colonialism to a language of decolonization. Post-colonialism implying that colonialism is done, decolonization implying that the work of moving beyond colonization is still being done. Uh, and so decolonization is a continuing active process. But how do we apply a theory of decolonization to education? So how do we decolonize a curriculum or a classroom or how we understand education as deriving from a Eurocentric, Anglocentric position? One of the things that happens with decolonizing in education is we often hear these terms that we need to decolonize the classroom. We need to decolonize curriculum. We de need to decolonize our schools. I think before we can even get there, we have to go back to what decolonization as a framework is saying. Decolonize as a framework emerged in response to the ongoing settler colonial violence and land theft. And that context is really important because what that means then is decolonization in education requires us to grapple with this ongoing settler colonial violence and land theft um, and really make sure that we are teaching these issues of settler colonialism in our classrooms and unpacking the ways in schooling continues to be a colonial project. Um, so earlier I talked about this idea of colonialism being divide and conquer. Just the very idea of how our school day is organized in English, math, science, social studies, gym. <laughs> that is a colonial construct because as you know, real life, you don't wake up at 8 a.m. Now I'm going to do literacy and now I'm going to go to the gym for my gym period. Like everything happens holistically in real life, right? So when you think of it that way, then what really is schooling as a colonial project achieving? It is achieving compliance. It is achieving obedience. When we think about who is a good student, is a good student someone who always listens to instructions and does as they're told? Or is a good student someone who challenges your teachers and goes, actually, the content that we have just learned is problematic, or the comments that were just passed should be challenged? What happens when students do that? Mm. Are they punished? or are they uh, applauded, right? And so we have to think about those kind of things in terms of what does decolonization in schooling spaces means? For me, it always go, going back to how can schooling become a means to challenge settler colonialism? How can it develop student agency to get the tools they need to dismantle these systems? Um, so as an example, one way in which um, decolonization in schools, like applies this theory to methodology is through something called participatory action research. One of the things that the student groups were recommending and asking for change, demanding for change, was that the, the curriculum that they're learning is very Eurocentric, it's very anti-Black. Their history courses in particular were very tokenistic, very Eurocentric, very anti-Black. So what they wanted was an anti-racist history course that particularly taught them Black excellence, not just 
about slavery, but Black excellence, and the ways in which Black resistance has functioned over the years. And, and that concrete recommendation and demand for change translated into a Saturday course where students can, for credit, get high school credits to study social justice and anti-Black history and ex uh, Black excellence. But in the afternoon, they're participating in a year-long youth participatory action research initiative where they're going to continue to design school-based policy change based on their research. And it can be in some of the topics that they've started exploring are things like microaggressions from peers and teachers textbooks, you know, problematic textbooks. Uh, and what we're doing in the, the schooling process then is giving students the tools they need to dismantle the system. Thank you so much for your time, Akriti. This was a really interesting talk, and it's a very important and valuable bit of research that you're doing. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. <laughs> That's all for this podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.